Welcome into the Old Souls Football Podcast. On today's episode, Neil and I dive into the 1981 season and the play that stood out the most from that season. The catch. Dwight Clark's touchdown reception from Joe Montana to send the 49ers to the Super Bowl. All that and more next. 1981. Ronald Reagan takes the Oval Office January of that year. About two months later, he gets shot in Washington, D.C. It's the last known assassination attempt on a sitting president. I yeah. know we know of, at least. I mean, MTV launches as the first 24-hour music channel, which I think we're not old enough to really care about MTV, but a lot of we, kids in the 80s. Yeah, we, we were just at the very end of, well, um, like... TRL, I remember that being on when we'd come home from school, but that was when I was like in fifth grade, maybe. And then MTV got really bad and they just started playing ridiculousness. And the Jersey, well, the Jersey Shore was awesome. But Jersey uh, Shore was like everybody, everybody my age loved Jersey Shore. Yeah, that was, you had to watch. It was like on Tuesday nights. And if you were nobody, if you came to high school the next day and didn't, watch that <laughs> yeah i even i'm i'm a loser and i know what jim tan laundry is so. <laughs> uh 1981 rick flair defeats dusty Rhodes to win his first heavyweight championship Woo! can you imagine how much of a vibe it was if you were like there live uh, watching the nature boy take a heavyweight belt unbelievable i mean that's one of the things I've noticed about this episode in particular is that the vibes from 1981. It was, it was a great year. It was really like the birth of the 80s because, you know, 1980, we were like, I think the country was still reeling from uh, the bad end to the 70s. And so 81 was kind of like entering a new age. Yeah. And I mean, Everything just looked fun. Like if you were at a a sporting event, you got people like the signs all over the stadiums. Yeah, that's actually something I want to talk about with this episode is how different it felt. Yeah. And and of course, like the amount of people like chain smoking, like in the stands was amazing. (laughs) Like you you go back and watch like old NBA games from like the late 70s and early 80s. You can literally see like the haze was like Chicago Stadium. Yeah, if you ever watched like a, a a Detroit Lions game in the Pontiac Silverdome, that place was yellow with smoke. <laughs> yeah, like they talk about artificial turf, like the AstroTurf, and how it probably hurt people. Of course, like football itself might have been kind of harmful, and then of course yeah. the steroid use. But don't forget all the secondhand smoke you probably got from going to the Silverdome. And then there's probably some asbestos that we don't know about either. Number one song that year, Betty Davis Eyes by Kim Carnes. Holy synthesizer, Batman. I turned that on and I felt like I was at a high school prom in the 80s. I was born in 93. I was not alive for the 80s, and I felt sentimental about that. <laughs> that was that was awesome. That was a vibe, too. Uh, I loved asking people that remember that song, and they're like, oh, my. that She had such a raspy voice, but it was a good song. 
<laughs> that, that was a that was a, a fun that was the telltale yeah she really did she like as somebody that doesn't have an amazing singing voice like you know i think that that song is really i mean it's it's pretty good it grew on me the more i listened to it uh america is introduced in 1981 to crack cocaine which oh, yeah. you know that's an epidemic that pretty much affected America's inner cities throughout the 80s and 90s. But yeah, and I'm being sarcastic here for those who aren't smart enough to realize that. <laughs> I think it affected NFL history. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Without crack, does Mike Dicka send the entire Saints draft away for Ricky Williams? And hmm. what was that, 99? Yeah, 99. Without crack, does Indianapolis trade a first-round pick for Trent Richardson after he averaged like three yards a carry in his rookie season? Huh. Yeah. <laughs> does Matt Nolan lead Detroit to a Super Bowl? Just to go back to, to Trent Richardson real quick, I remember like 10 years ago on Twitter, there was like a, an all-22 camera shot of like a massive hole and then a, like a crowd of bodies. And it was like an arrow pointing towards the hole and an arrow pointing towards the body. And it said, which do you think, or which path do you think Trent Richardson took? And he clearly took the one right into the crowd of bodies. Yeah, he, uh, he was a good college player. I I cannot explain. Maybe he had injuries that we didn't know about in Cleveland or something yeah. like that. But like he was not the same player when he got to the pros. God, like no. he had no explosion, but like you said, no vision either. I don't know what happened to him. Without crack, does Matt Millen lead Detroit to a Super Bowl? Because looking back at some of his drafts, it's like, what are you thinking? Yeah. Every a wide receiver year. three years in a row in the first yeah. round. <laughs> because honestly, when you're building a team, a championship team, it's built through wide receivers. Yeah, the outside not, not, in. <laughs> yeah, no one, no, literally, no one does that. Like, if you look at every dynasty, they win the line of scrimmage, including the teams we'll talk about later. Without crack, and I think this one is the most crack worthy of mm. all of the NFL moves that we were alive for. Without crack cocaine, does Tim Tebow get drafted by Denver in the first round? Hmm, that's a good question. Like, I remember that draft. And I'm thinking to myself, like, anybody with eyes knew Tim Tebow was a gimmicky college quarterback. Great at college. But, like, his throwing motion was so awful. Yeah, I I remember ESPN doing, like, draft specials about how he was trying to, uh, he was trying to, like, unlearn that wonky delivery that he had. And I think eventually he kind of got to the point where he was, like, yeah, you know, whatever God wants me to, however he wants me to throw the ball. And he, I remember him saying, only one team has to like me. Well, he found that one team. That's like an <laughs> that's like an NBA team saying, we're going to teach this point guard how to dribble the right way. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? Right. So, I like, that when, when they made that deal, for, I knew the McDaniels era was over in Denver. And turns <laughs> out, it was. And still, Tebow has a playoff win, which is just amazing. Last, without crack, really ayahuasca at this point, but I can't tell the difference. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. 
is Aaron Rodgers a totally normal guy that's likable, that wins championships, that doesn't melt down every single January? America was introduced to crack cocaine, but the NFL was introduced to a lot of great storylines. Disclosure, I'm not actually saying these people were on crack. It's just these are characteristics in terms of moves of that people on crack would make is what I'm kind of alluding to. Another thing uh, in 1981, and no one probably knows this except me, a utility player in the Milwaukee Brewers organization named Dan Gilmartin plays every position on the field in a single game in the minor leagues. Huh. He was the first player, I believe, to do that. And it's been done in the major leagues since. I think a guy for the Rangers did it in 2000. The only reason I bring that up is that was my high school baseball coach. Oh, really? Yeah, that was like How his claim that? to fame. <laughs> Where was he? So he wasn't on the Brewers at that point, right? No, he was a minor leaguer. He never got oh, to okay. the major leagues, but huh. I think he got to either single or double A, I believe. Okay. Uh, yep. So uh, another fun fact is Larry Bird in 1981 wins his first championship with the Celtics. In the early 80s, you get the Lakers-Celtics dynamic, and that's a vibe. As yeah. Well. You already had a magic Larry rivalry that started at Indiana State, Michigan State. Actually, it started before that, I think. Yeah. Did you ever watch the HBO series? Uh, I guess they didn't call it Showtime because... Yeah, like they called HBO's it Winning Time. Together. What's that? Winning Time. Yeah, Winning I think it time. was called. Yeah, I did. I never watched it like episode one through. I just like when I was flipping through the channels um, and it was on, I would watch it because the cinematography of it was incredible it's still yeah. technically on air isn't it i think they're just in between yeah. no they canceled they canceled it oh they did oh yeah it's the most unsatisfying finish because what, oh. what they did is like larry bird wins the championship and you're thinking like okay well the lakers are going to get them back and then they're yeah. like here's what happened in the 80s and here's what happened <laughs> in the 90s magic gets hiv the end and i'm just <laughs> But it sucks. That, that's that's it. Show, yeah, that's how show business is. I guess if it's not super popular like Game of Thrones right away, yeah. you suck. We're never going to put you on the air ever again. So that's a shame. Thank God the HBO executives don't run our podcast. Just saying. <laughs> in the NFL in 1981, I would say that that was one of the most, this was one of the most interesting seasons. Because there's a lot of different things happening. So you kind of have the end of the Steelers dynasty. Uh, their last Super Bowl was in 79. Uh, but the NFL draft in the spring is loaded outside of quarterback. So the was it the 83 draft is the one with all the quarterbacks, right? Mm-hmm. So like, we don't get Marino or Jim Kelly. They're coming. But we're not quite there yet. Uh, and you know, John Elway, I forgot to mention him in that, which is very silly of me. So the 81 draft is loaded. We have seven hall of fame players in that class. We have Lawrence Taylor to the giants. Second overall, Kenny Easley to the Seahawks fourth overall, Ronnie Lott, who we'll be talking about later in the episode. The Niners take him eighth overall, Mike Singletary, your guy. 
in Chicago. Yeah. Second round pick to the Bears. Samurai Mike. Yep. One of the better linebackers of all time. Howie Long to the Raiders, 48th pick, which looking at Howie Long physically, I don't really understand how he would have slipped out of the first round. Like he Probably seems playing like he... at Villanova got him way oh, down that's there. Right. That's right. He went to Villanova, not Virginia. His kids yeah. went to Virginia, right? Yeah, or at small least Catholic one... school. Well, I don't even think Villanova has a football team anymore. They, no, they do. Oh, they do? Okay. Yeah. Howie Long's their best player of all time, but uh, like guys like Brian Westbrook, I mean, they went there. Oh, but, I did you know, not. Yeah, I think Villanova might have won the CAA this year, uh, or at least a share of it. And yes, right. yes. So, uh, Ricky Jackson to the Saints, 51st overall, and then Russ Grimm to the Redskins, 69th overall. So really loaded class, and what really stands out is outside of Ronnie Lott, like all of these guys are kind of line of scrimmage guys, and that's mm -hmm. what's going to def – I mean, we just said it. Championship teams are really defined at the line of scrimmage, and I think Lawrence Taylor, like if you, look, if you ask about the 81 draft, it's Lawrence Taylor. Oh, um, certainly. Yeah, I mean, arguably the best linebacker of all time, arguably the best pass rusher of all time. Like he just he got to the quarterback at will. Uh, his highlight tapes for the Giants, like, are some of the, if you're just bored watching Lawrence Taylor, just manhandle quarterbacks. It, it's a joy to watch. Uh, and speaking of cocaine, uh, going back. <laughs> Unfortunately, because he's a nice man, but he did have a problem within the 80s. George Rogers from South Carolina, he actually won Rookie of the Year in 81. Uh, oh. And, you know, if he doesn't have a drug issue and he had some injuries uh, with New Orleans, maybe he is one of those Hall of Famers. He went first overall to the Saints. And, you know, that's another what if, because a lot, you know, some of these guys got ruined by drugs and injuries, and George Rogers is one of them. Um, and that's more of a prevailing issue in America in the 80s anyway. But George Rogers was kind of victim to that. Um, the defending champion Oakland Raiders have a Super Bowl hangover and go 7-9. and nine. And uh, this was actually their last season in Oakland the first time. That's right. Yeah. So Al Davis, I guess, moves them to L.A. and then back to Oakland again in the 90s. And then out of Oakland again. And it's kind of amazing. He never actually got what he wanted while he was alive. And that was a new stadium. That's unbelievable when you think that this is not their first rodeo. There, it, It's it's kind of true, though, of the teams that are have moved recently. They do have a history of moving. But they <clears> – I think I, – I mean, looking back on it now – Obviously, the Raiders are always meant for Oakland, but them playing in L.A. was also kind of cool. But playing in Vegas has never been cool to me. No, I, I don't know no. if other people would agree with that. But I well, my take, yeah, my take on the Raiders is like they're California's team. It's so it's it feels so wrong. Like a lot of people would now say like, oh, the 49ers. Right. Yeah. But the thing is, like. 10 years ago, when you just walk around the streets of Los Angeles, like you ask people who their favorite football team is, and they would say the Raiders. You never hear anybody say the Chargers. 
Definitely didn't hear the Rams because they weren't they were still, you know, they were in St. Louis at the time. And then the 49ers, like that's more of a Northern California thing. Like the Raiders were synonymous with that state, and they're the ones that like got kicked out of it, which is kind of crazy. Like they, they yeah. had to go to Vegas. And uh it's a it's a shame that they're in Vegas now. Um, you know, but at the same time, like it seems like the franchises and a healthy spot. They just hosted the Super Bowl, so I guess they could be doing worse. Uh, That's they true. Could always, they could always be like the, you know, they could be St. Louis and lose their team altogether. Um, but anyway, uh, the New York Sack Exchange in New York takes center stage with their fearsome pass rush. Um, what sucks about the 81 season, though, is technically the sack is not an official stat yet. Yeah. Yeah. So 82. The, yeah. So there's like a lot of, there's a lot of new things. So like when you're studying players that played like in the late seventies, early eighties, you know, I recommend people go to pro football reference when you study, cause they count the unofficial sacks. Like, so if you go and look at like Deacon Jones in the sixties for the Rams, like they're counting his unofficial sacks. Versus, like, if you go to their Wikipedia page or their NFL.com page, Deacon Jones has, like, zero career sacks, which is obviously not true. So, but anyway, the the New York Stock, uh, I said New York Stock Exchange, the Sack Exchange, uh, underrated nickname for a team. It's just that they didn't win anything, so history doesn't really talk about them as much. They have some really strong teams, though. They did, yeah, but the AFC had a lot more, like, fun teams, I think. Like, you had the Bengals. The Chargers were the real fun team, I think. Yeah, Eric Coriel. Yeah, so the Jets were fun, and they're in a big market. But you had really two main, like, guys in Joe Klecko, who, Hall of Fame guy, who actually just got in last year. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. He won Defensive Player of the Year in 1981, the year we're talking about. Two-time first-team All-Pro. But I'm not even sure if he was actually better than this next guy. But this next guy is like a total tool. Like, literally everybody that covered him hated yeah. him. Yeah. So I don't think he'll get in just based off the fact that no one likes him. And that's Mark Gastineau. Um, Giant D-bag according to everybody that covered him and everybody that played against him. But you watch, like, some of his old tape. He was dominant, dude. Yeah, he was. He had 20 unofficial sacks in 1981, 19 in 83, and then 22 in 84. And he actually held the record up until Michael Strahan getting a free record from Brett Favre in 2001. Yeah. Brett Lying Favre down. Just, that still pisses me off. Yeah, like, it, it should. If I'm, if I'm Michael Strahan, here, go ahead. No, I was going to say, especially as a Packers fan, having to watch uh, him literally lay in front of him to just yeah. because he was a buddy. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the game was in hand because it was like yeah. the late fourth quarter. But, and, and I think the Giants stunk that year. So it's not like the game meant anything for the Giants. Yeah. So I think Favre was just like setting him up. But to me, like if I'm Strahan, I'm kind of ticked off at Brett Favre 
He's yeah. like, I don't want the record if I didn't get it. Like, I mm-hmm. want to sack you for real. I don't want you to just slide into me and give me a sack. Like, that cheapens the record, and that sucks. Like, I get it. People don't like Mark Gastineau, but that sucks that his record was taken away from him like that. Because um, 22 sacks in a season is unbelievably good. For sure. Lawrence Taylor never did that. So, says you know, something. yeah, that does. Reggie White never did it. Like, there's some great pass rushers that we consider better than Mark Gaston at all time. But he did something in 84 and really throughout the entire 80, early 80s where he was awesome. Um, but he retired in 88. He had this kind of, you know, crazy situation with his, I guess, fiance, who was an actress named Bridget Nielsen. That was weird. She claimed she had an illness tabloids pick it up like he was just a giant distraction people didn't like him he had that like negative persona that comes with celebrity um but my question to you is like looking back at Gastineau like he kind of feels like a hall of fame player to me and people just for whatever reason like I guess they don't like him or think he's in the hall of very good like what do you think because I think he's a borderline guy yeah, um, he definitely has the resume. He had an incredibly high peak uh, for what it lasted for. Um, but it, it might be something similar to like, um, I don't want to compare it to the Baseball Hall of Fame where some writers have their favorites and guys that they'll just never vote for. And I don't think I don't want to say the Pro Football Hall of Fame is like that, but I think they can afford to be like that maybe every once in a while with a guy like Mark Gassino, um, who maybe people forget about and there's not people pounding on the door to get him in the Hall of Fame. I feel like that's a name that if somebody brought it up, they'd be like, yeah, we don't vote for that guy sort of a thing. Yeah. And ultimately, like if we're voting on character, there's other guys in the Hall of Fame that aren't likable aren't likable guys but in terms of merit to me this guy fits it like he defined an era in the early 80s on what it meant to get to the quarterback and mm-hmm. that's an important part of football we literally care about that from a defensive lineman almost more than anything else yeah can you sack the quarterback can you create negative plays mark gastineau he did that so true so parcells Uh, Bill Parcells, he takes over as the defensive coordinator for the Giants. So he's not the head coach yet. So I think he takes over. Yeah, Ray Perkins was still the head coach. 83 he took over, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, Yeah, he takes over in 83. So, But he's now the defensive coordinator, Lawrence Taylor's rookie year. But he also has a guy named Bill Belichick that becomes the linebacker's coach. And this is where I think Belichick's career takes off. Yeah. Because he's, yeah, th- this is where he started to get to work with LT. Yep. And I mean, I don't think if Belichick doesn't get the chance to work with LT and build his resume, like with those dominant Giants defenses, does he get these opportunities in the 90s? And does he, you know, get set up with Parcells and kind of learn under yeah. him? So perfect place, perfect time yeah. for Belichick, I think. Uh, a fun fact. Romeo Cornell is also the special teams coordinator on that team. So uh, don't you love that? 
Yeah. And they all just stick together. Like <laughs> I knew he'd been in football a long time, but I didn't know he was already as far as a special teams coordinator. Like yeah. In 81. <laughs> that's like that's going pretty far back. It is. For for a guy that was coaching in the 2010s. So. When did he was the Chiefs interim job the last job he had? Or I feel like he was a defensive coordinator after that. He didn't just have the interim job in Kansas City. He got it because when he beat Oh, the Packers, that's right. In 2012. It was yeah. the in-between year between Haley and Andy Reid. My question, like I've always thought about that because if they don't beat the 15 wow. and one Packers in 2011, he doesn't get that job. And Andy Reid doesn't take over. Whoa! Yeah. Oh! <laughs> that, that that Packers win was pretty big for the Chiefs in 2011, and Kyle Orton is to thank for it. Way hey, to go. If we, if we didn't have Kyle Orton, we wouldn't have Patrick Mahomes right now. Way to go, Kyle. Thanks. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't mind the Chiefs, like, in, in terms of – like, no. it's way better – that we ended up with Mahomes in the A for us too, at least it's way better oh, yeah. that he's in the AFC West than he is. Like I would hate everything. If he were like the, if he were the quarterback for like the giants or the 49ers or even oh. worse, like the Vikings, the Vikings. <laughs> oh, God. I don't know what I would well, do. Well, the best thing, Steven, uh, not to, to get too sidetracked, but there is that stat that me and you always talk about that when a quarterback loses the Super Bowl for the first time, like when they lose their Super Bowl debut, they don't go back. Not they don't win it. They don't go back. So yeah, Elway was the time, last one to do it, right? Elway was the last one to do it. So every time Mahomes beats an NFC quarterback, I'm, it's for us, it's just like that's what must be quarterback we have to deal with yeah, cross him <laughs> off the list yeah. so who's the sacrificial lamb next year we'll see jordan love oh stop it <laughs> yeah i actually well, that's that is my bold prediction is an nfc north team does win the nfc this year next year the, yeah congrats congrats to detroit on that <laughs> But uh, the Dolphins, so we're starting to get into the, like the playoff relevant teams in 1981. The Dolphins go 11, four and one. But this roster, I like looked over this team. This is like Don Shula, like one of his best coaching jobs. I could not outside of, I think, one Hall of Famer and Dwight Stevenson, who didn't even play that long. Uh, he didn't have a long career. This roster didn't look great. No, and they, they did have the killer bees defense, but that was about it. Yeah. But like really no hall of fame talent and like comparing oh. it to some of the other players that, and teams that you're going up against in the AFC and potentially in the super bowl, this Dolphins team, it was not what they had in the seventies for sure. Like you don't have Paul Warfield out there running routes, Larry Zonka out of the backfield with Mercury Morris, you know, Quarterback play wasn't awesome, but somehow Don Shula just wins games. Like he went 11, four and one and more impressive. Impressively the following year, he actually got him to the Super Bowl and had a shot to win that game in Super Bowl 17. Yeah. Um, Riggins ends up closing it out in the fourth quarter, but what you were going to say something. No, well, I was going to say that um, their offense totally fell apart in this. I think they only had like one first down, but they were playing with like David Woodley and Don Strzok yeah. and 
Yeah. And we see David Woodley in these playoffs. Um, we too. Yeah. In 82, though, it's kind of an asterisk year because, like, it was a strike sword in season. M- Mickey so, Mouse like, year doesn't count. A kicker won the MVP. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that which is amazing. We could do an episode on Mark Mosley, honestly. We um, should. Yeah, just all the game-winning kicks be fascinating. <laughs> the Colts go two and fourteen. Uh, apparently, this this team was such a disaster, and an Ursay driving a team into the ground. Who would have thought? Uh, Bert Jones told Sports Illustrated that year that team owner Robert Ursay called plays from the booth. Like he 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 was sitting there, like up in the booth, t- directing the guys what to do and it led to a great season when they went two and 14 imagine his son doing that now oh god twitter (laughs) well i think now they would get like a giant fine right yeah oh certainly because that's illegal like his only coaches can be communicating with the sideline i think (laughs) and like who there was a gm i don't want to get off the talk but somebody got in trouble for that a few years ago um i think it was in cleveland I feel like it happens all the time in baseball too. I feel like baseball GMs. Well, because of stealing signs. Yeah, that's I why think they, they control all that stuff. Yeah, that's why they let they limit that. They, you can't like be communicating with coaches from outside of the, the coaches booth because they're trying to limit like people filming from somewhere on the other side of the field, so you know what play is coming. Um, you all the Ohio State fans that are listening, because that's what <laughs> Michigan did. <laughs> Eat this national championship, please. Yeah. The 1981 playoffs, though, were awesome. Mm-hmm. Tampa Bay was really good. And they were kind of the upstart team. They were fun. My dad loves John McKay uh, because he gave, like, one of the best one-liners of all time. So the Bucks were really bad in the mid-70s. You know, I know what this is. And the Bucks were really bad in the mid-70s, but understandably so. Back then, when you were an expansion team, you're going up against a league that doesn't have free agency, so you can't just sign a bunch of players, right? Like, your talent pool sucks, and it's going to take you years to build a good roster, which John McKay eventually did. And he he's, I think, like, they go winless in 76, I believe, and... A reporter asked him after the game, like, what did you think of your team's execution? And his only, he had one reply and he said, I'm in favor of it. (laughs) And I think about that quote a lot because (laughs) there's a lot of situations where I wish I could have like an answer like that. (laughs) And he, like, he was joking, but serious at the same time. And I, I love that. And the Bucks were fun. They had the creamsicle uniforms, like, Man, it's the 80s. I just, the vibes, they're so mm-hmm. great. We were born at, a, at the wrong time, Steven. I think about that a lot where I'm like, man, being a kid in the 80s sounds awesome. Oh, I always think like if I was born in like, actually, give me like 1964. So early high school around this time, or excuse me, you're graduating high school around this time, 1981, you know, or you're at least going into your junior year. You have the mid 80s where you're, you know, hitting your twenties, ah, yeah, would have been perfect. Oh yeah, but the eighties were amazing. Uh, Dallas is uh the team to beat. Uh, 
in the NFC though, and they run mm-hmm. over the Bucks. The Bucks were like they weren't an upstart. They had made an NFC title game before, but Dallas was the cream of the crop, not just in the NFC, but pretty much outside of the Steelers, the NFL. Like they were consistently excellent throughout the entire late 60s and early 70s or not early 70s the entire 1970s they were like the nfc dynasty basically the only thing that kept them from being like an all-time team were the steelers because they lost two super bowls to them um the dolphins uh they host an afc championship or an afc divisional round against arguably the most fun team of all time the air coriel chargers and that Chargers team was awesome. Mm-hmm. Like, I talked to people that did grow up in the 80s, like late 70s, early 80s, that were like, you know, 10, 15, like in that age range. If you ask them, who was your favorite quarterback? I don't think they say Joe Montana. They say no, Dan Fouts. Dan Fouts for sure. Um, he was the cool one. He really was. Their offense in general was just so cool. I mean, um, was San Diego was such a hot city. It was like, you know, it was it was like how Miami was in the early 70s. That's what uh, San Diego felt like in the early 80s. You know, good-looking people living out there. They had Jack Murphy Stadium, everybody wearing Charger gold. Yeah. Um, and their offense was high-flying. They ran the 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 score up on teams. They didn't have a good defense, but man, they could score points. Yeah, in '81, Dan Fouts, forty-eight hundred passing yards, which is that's ridiculous. Like, that's a lot. Uh, thirty-three touchdowns. Like that in nineteen eighty-one is like an MVP level season. Uh, he didn't win MVP. That went to Ken Anderson. Um, what uh, Ken Anderson? Those who are new to 80s football quarterback of the Bengals. We'll get to him. Wes Chandler, Charlie Joyner, really good receivers. Charlie Joyner is a Hall of Fame. When I watched this Dolphins Chargers game, that's actually the player that like stuck out to me. Like everybody talks about Kellen Winslow, who yeah is also a Hall of Famer. He has like an historic game, but Charlie Joyner, underrated Hall of Fame wide receiver. Like when you talk about great players from that era, like. Watch this guy, man. He could play. He was so fun to watch. Uh, but Kellen Winslow, like I said, he's their tight end, and he was arguably one of the greatest players ever if injuries don't ruin his career because he had six seasons of 10-plus games, and in three of those seasons were first-team All-Pros, and one of them was a second-team All-Pro. He was, I'm trying to think of like who has been that dominant at tight end. Like, I don't even think Gronk can say that. Yeah, I think that would be the only uh, possible comparison. And of course, a different player in a different era. But yeah, I mean, that's the only, I I would like Tony Gonzalez. Did he, did he have something similar to that? I don't think so. Yeah, I think the the tricky part about later tight, it's like, I think in that era, like, I mean, yeah, Kellen that, Winslow was the tight end, and they're like, like in in the current t- era. Like we we have Kelsey, we have Gronk, we have other like some people how, say tight Kelsey. ends were still a sixth offensive lineman up, and you know, yeah. like obviously everybody remembers John Mackey, everybody remembers Ditka, 
yeah. you know, Randy Grossman had a couple good years and yeah. Billy Joe Dupree in the seventies. And but we like, weren't and Ozzie Newsom was just coming onto the scene. Ozzie Newsom was yeah. also just coming onto the scene. But even like comparing Ozzie Newsom and Kellen Winslow, Kellen Winslow was so much more, and not to take anything away from Ozzie Newsom because Ozzie Newsom was great too. But Ozzie Newsom was kind of like more of like the offensive tackle build. Do you know what I'm saying? Like he he was a wide guy. Helen Winslow was your power forward type yeah. tight end. The really the first of that kind. Yeah, because I mean now the tight ends that we get like the the fantasy football studs are like carbon Travis copies. Kelsey. Yeah, well they're not they're move tight ends. Yes, like, yeah, they're not inline tight ends. Yeah, like to like you could actually say like when I when you actually watch football, like if you ask a lot of really like football football people that were you know in front offices, a lot of them would tell you like in the current game, Dallas Goddard is one of the best uh, tight ends in the game right now because yeah. of the way he blocks, but he doesn't put up a lot of big numbers because he's almost in line every play. But they don't have to throw it to him because they have like fifteen other guys that can catch passes for him. Right. Me- meanwhile, like Travis Kelsey. He's basically a receiver. Like what he and Debo Samuel do isn't really that different, like where they line up. So I agree with you. Like Ozzie Newsome and Kellen Winslow, I don't even like to compare them. Like, yes, they're tight ends, but they they play completely different positions within that tight end. Like mm-hmm. it's that we're getting really into the weeds of the football, but <laughs> that's important context. Uh but he had a huge game here. 13 catches, 166 yards, and a touchdown. One of considered one of the greatest performances in postseason history, if you go back and watch this game. But this game was crazy. It's known as the Epic in Miami. If you're interested in watch, watching it, highly recommend it. You can, I think, see the full version of it on YouTube on like the NFL's channel. The game time temperature is 85 degrees. Which in January that's pretty warm, mm-hmm. and it is more humid than Satan's gooch. <laughs> yeah. Keep that weather in mind, by the way, because it's gonna come. Ha- it's gonna come back to be relevant. Whoever wins this game has to go to Cincinnati the following week, and it gets a little cold in Cincinnati the following yeah. week, just a little. San Diego jumps to this huge lead, though, in the first quarter. It's 24 nothing. They're rolling. They're going to the AFC Championship. Like, we got cool in the game playing. Like, we're ready to go. Not so fast, as Lee Corso would say. Shula replaces David Woodley, who sucked in the first quarter, puts Don Strzok in. Miami storms back in the second quarter. Because Don Strzok had a much better arm. Yes. And they start moving the ball downfield. But at the end of the half, and this is what one of the craziest plays in NFL history, actually, I would say. It didn't happen at the end of the game, so it kind of gets forgotten about. But Miami executes this hook and ladder play where Strzok hits Daryl Harris downfield. But instead of running after the catch, Harris laterals the ball to Tony Nathan, who runs another 30 yards for a touchdown. It's one of the craziest plays I've ever seen. Don Creekey's call of that is fantastic when he goes look at this oh my god i get chills just thinking and the orange bowl i the dolphins should never left the orange bowl i mean that place was a football heaven again 
1981 vibes this god that's it was awesome like the shit that we deal with now like we're live from at&t stadium <laughs> fuck AT&T's, that at&t stadium in arlington park and <laughs> no oh like we're at acura shore stadium <laughs> what Take me to the Orange Bowl. I like it. Looks like a shithole, and this is like, you know, thirty years before they demolish it. It already looks like a shithole. But my God, like that looks awesome. I want to. I want to go to a game there. Like, man, I I love it. Nineteen eighty one. But uh, Miami takes a fourth quarter lead in this game, and Dan Fouts ends up trying uh, or tying the game with a blind pass intended for Winslow. So he's not even actually trying to throw the ball to Winslow in this play. But somehow he, this ball ends up finding Chargers wide receiver James Brooks for the touchdown. So he accidentally throws a touchdown. It's yeah. crazy. Blind yeah. luck. And, and he even admits it. Like, I wasn't trying to do it. But that's just the way this game was. It was insane. The ball would bounce one way, and then it would go the other. Uh, but speaking of blind luck, later in the episode... This is my opinion. Some people dispute this. I think blind luck comes to play with Joe Montana and Dwight Clark. Yeah. That's just my opinion. No, it's it's actually a very similar the way it all played out. It's it's true. Yeah. Yep. Miami has a chance to win the game, but Kellen Winslow, who we just gave a stat line earlier with like the 13 catches, 166 yards, and a touchdown, he's not done yet. He blocks a kick. And we're going to overtime. Like that's, I think that's what puts him and his performance in that game above like anybody I've ever seen. It wasn't just the, you know, offensive production. It's the fact that he, he keeps them alive because he blocks a kick in a crucial moment. Like in just the effort he played with was awesome. Like mm-hmm. it's an all, it made me a Kellen Winslow fan just watching it. In overtime, both teams are exhausted from playing in the heat and humidity. There's that picture of Kellen Winslow being carried off the field by his teammates. Like, he can't walk, basically. Um, But, of course, the game doesn't end quickly in overtime. Both kickers miss their chances. It goes back and forth. And then, finally, at the end of overtime, the Chargers win it at the end of the first period of overtime to cement a win in the greatest NFL game ever played, in my opinion. The truth. And we're not even done yet because we're actually just, we're, we're covering the NFC Championship. That was a divisional round, so the playoffs are already awesome, right? We still have Cincinnati. So Paul Brown, he steps down after the 1975 season, and he's one of the greatest coaches of all time. Everybody admits this. Like, if you have a top 10 list in coaches, he's obviously one of them. It's undisputed. Belichick, I think, has said that the greatest coach in the history of the NFL is Paul Brown. I'm not going to argue against that. I think there's certain tiers, but I think Paul Brown's right there with, with all of them, including Belichick. He won a Big Ten, by the way. I didn't know this until last night. By the, uh, I didn't know. I didn't realize he was at Ohio State. Really? Yeah. For some reason, I was going to say like the University of Chicago or something like that. Really? 
Yeah. Oh shit. So he won he won a Big Ten and a national title in the early forties at Ohio State. Okay. Wow. So <laughs> so Urban Meyer, we can say, is like the fourth best coach in Ohio State history now. So th- just another reason to put Urban down a peg, which is awesome. Like, thank I you, Paul. Hope you Ohio State fans are listening to this. They should be happy. The fact that Paul Brown coached your team is badass. I wish Paul Brown coached the Packers. Like, I can't yeah. say that. Like, but anyway, Paul Brown's awesome. And, uh, you know, he, but he ends up leaving. He goes on to the Browns. They win. For AAFC, the All-American Football Conference Championships in the late 40s with the Browns. And yes, those count, by the way. Those count just as much as the NFL. And he wins the NFL three times in the 50s when the Browns join the league. Uh, but he goes through that. We could probably do an episode on this topic, the fact that he got fired by Art Modell uh, in Cleveland. Yeah. But after he gets fired by Cleveland, he ends up going to Cincinnati to basically established the Cincinnati Bengals. So he retires and steps down. He's just a front office guy now. He's just running the team. They have decent seasons in 76 and 77 under Bill Johnson, but it kind of all falls apart in 78 and 79 uh, under Bill Johnson and Homer Rice. So they become kind of a bad team in the AFC. In comes Forrest Gregg. Hall of Fame Packers offensive lineman. Uh, he takes over as head coach in 1980. They go 6-10, but they do get a win here. They draft Anthony Munoz in the first round. And yeah. Anthony that Munoz. That was good. Is, uh, <laughs> yeah, just like I would probably say the best tackle ever. Uh, you think? Is I I would say Anthony Munoz like I think might be the best like I was looking over his resume like yeah holy crap <laughs> yeah. Like, I can't think of anybody better like <laughs> he was he was awesome dominant so, and it's awesome to know that Forrest Gregg like was the coach his rookie season so it's like who's coaching up rookie Anthony Munoz Forrest Gregg that's just yeah. so cool to think about another Hall of Famer yeah. Um, so, and, and this is like Lombardi's only successful coach, basically is like under his, under his coaching trees, Forrest Gregg, um, in 1981, they're the upstart Bengals. They're 12 and four and they get the AFC's number one seed. They have this rookie receiver named Chris Collinsworth. That's taking the world by storm. No, here's a guy. Yeah. He was a good player. He wasn't a great player. He was really good. Yeah. He was a really good route runner and he had pretty good hands, but he was very white. So he was super slow and uh, he didn't have a lot of meat on him. <laughs> yeah. I, well, you know, there were still guys like Lance Ar- Allworth, you know, they were really good, true. Allworth was like so fast though. And yeah. Collinsworth and, wasn't that kind of player. And, and Allworth made most of his hay in the sixties and early seventies. Oh, I think Allworth could play now. Like, if you go oh, back sure and watch his stuff. Yeah. Um, but anyway, the, the Bengals, they're awesome. The AFC runs through Cincinnati, and that's going to be a problem for this Chargers team. Because yeah, the, Chargers, the Chargers end up meeting the Bengals in Cincinnati. Big for the deal. AFC title game. Yeah, like, you know, 
who hasn't gone to Cincinnati and won playoff games? Right. It's Cincinnati, they're like close to the Ohio River. That's way further south than Lake Michigan. It's probably not even that cold down there. <laughs> but this is 81, so different vibes. <laughs> different vibes. Global warming out of the happen, Jet. Santa Claus decides to send a polar vortex, I guess. I don't know what happened. Like I'd have to talk to a meteorologist on this. The game time game time temperature in Cincinnati for the AFC title game in 1980. I guess this is technically January 82. Minus nine degrees. And that isn't that is over a 90 degree difference from the Chargers previous week in Miami. Where it, it was gets like worse. 85. But it's windy on top of that. There's like, I think they said like 20 mile per hour wind gusts. Something around that. The wind chill was registered at minus 59 degrees. As my grandpa used to say, it's colder than a mother-in-law's kiss. I'm surprised like, because at some point, like how do you even function as an athlete? Like your body will like start to shut down. How do you function as a human? (laughs) Alcohol. Alcohol. I mean actually that's probably that's probably a bad move to make when you're super cold because that I think that will I guess it'll slow your, your heart rate down. <laughs> yeah. Which would lower your body t- body temperature even more. <laughs> but this game was a route. Fouts couldn't even throw the ball. Like I if you try and rewatch the freezer poll, don't like watch the NFL films clips of it. The actual game yeah. rebroadcast, like this game was over from the start. Like, I think Dan Faust's first pass, <laughs> like the, it was a Dick Enberg, I think was calling this game. Yeah. Merlin Olson. And Dick Enberg's basically like, it's intercepted. Cause this ball is like hanging in the air, for like 10 seconds. <laughs> I've never seen a ball die like that. And I knew like at that point, I'm like, yeah, it's not happening. Like the chargers were so much fun. And it just, the weather decided, no, you're not going to the Super Bowl. Yeah, truly, truly a shame. But in fairness, the Chargers did have their shot at the Super Bowl the year before. Yes, at home. Yeah, and they couldn't capitalize then. So, well, you know, learn how they, to play. Learn how to play some defense. Like that was. They had a yeah. fun team offensively, but they didn't. They they stunk on that one side of the ball. Like, yeah, it's true. So, but uh, just some observations from this game, like. Kenny Anderson, the MVP of the league that season, he, you know, he was really good. Um, somebody get this man a hand pass though. Like he kept <laughs> like every single throw a- a- after every play, like he's sticking his hands like all the way down his pants. And I'm just like, get this man a hand warmer. Like I, I, I was just like, man, you're touching the ball. Bad for him. Yeah, but you're touching the ball. You're like, I don't want to be touching the ball when you've got your hands all over your junk. But this guy, like, I I can't blame him necessarily because here's a guy that's out here playing in minus 59. So, anyway, the 49ers, they're up next in the NFC Championship game. San Francisco hosting, I, I believe this is their first chance at an NFC title game, and they're hosting it at Candlestick Park, which, again, fill it in for me, Neil. Candlestick Park was the vibes. It was the 80s, the early vibes. That's actually that that was one of my biggest takeaways. Because I have I watched 
the the game that we're going to talk about later with the game the whole episode is about i watched it maybe during the pandemic so this was my second time taking it in and it just i mean did you notice that there's way more crowd shots back then yeah well the fans are more interesting the fans were more you had pimps you had girls that one girl that was as soon as dwight clark caught it when she was about to say Fuck. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't take well, and it doesn't cost you seven hundred dollars to get a seat in the upper deck no. like it would now. Like, yeah, it, it it's the NFL hadn't gotten too corporate yet. Like now, it's yeah. ridiculous. Like you go to an NFL game, you want to take like you and your kids. It's gonna cost you, like, if you have a family of four, it's gonna cost you what twelve hundred oh, bucks. Easy. And that's like not including all the parking and all the bull crap you have to deal with. And then like you want to buy a hot dog, like, oh, that'll be eight fifty. And that's being yeah. generous. Like a, a beer is twelve dollars. Yeah. Speaking of fans in the stands, by the way, do you know what family was at this game? At the catch. Uh um... a four a four year old with his dad. Oh yes. Uh Tom Brady. Touchdown yeah. time. <laughs> At first, like when I had read that, I was like, oh, that's bullshit. Like, come on. Like, how old is he? And I'm like, yeah, he was four. He could have gone. And, but there's a picture of it. So, I, like, once I saw that, I'm like, okay. He was there. I, re- I remember when I was, I was in kindergarten when the Patriots won their first Super Bowl. And I remember saying to my mom, um, I go, mom, did you, did you know that Tom Brady was on the Brady bunch? <laughs> Like where I got that, my mom was like, "No, he wasn't, Neil. Like he's way too young for that." And I was yeah. like, "Well, how old are you?" Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's. I like. I think I'm surprised. Like Chris Berman or anybody didn't run more Brady name with that, like with yeah. the Brady bunch. I'm like, just that's just like it was right there for him, it and was, he, I don't feel was. like he ever did it. And it um, was still a big show. It's because it was on Nick at Night all the time. Yeah. And well, the Brady Bunch is like an iconic show, like yeah. and especially if people like Chris Berman's age, like would have right loved their alley. Like yeah, yeah, they grew up with that stuff. But the fun fact I thought about this more, like and really completely irrelevant to the game because it's a, he's four years old when he's there. But Tom Brady actually ends his career with more Super Bowls than Bill Walsh and Tom Landry combined. Wow. That's depressing to think about for the other two because pretty damn successful, by the way. Landry had two, Walsh had three, Brady had seven. <laughs> wow, oh my. a four year old at that game walked away with more Super Bowls, <laughs> the greatest NFL player of all time. He's four, anyway. Uh, prior to 81, though, the 49ers. Basically, like the least successful franchise from the old NFL, I would say, like mm-hmm. the 1960s on, like maybe they're, you know, obviously, maybe the Saints, like in the Falcons, and like there were some teams in there that had very little success, but uh, they were kind of a laughing stock throughout their existence, like just completely irrelevant team. And Bill Walsh, he comes in, like they had won anything prior to him getting there, he takes over in 79. Uh, doesn't start off very well. Two no. and fourteen. In today's NFL, 
Bill Walsh gets fired after his first season. Probably does because he's ruining the, we need to get a new rookie quarterback next year and we need, Oh, he might've got, but he, he was an offensive coach. So they might've given him a little bit more. If he was yeah. a defensive coach, they would have kicked his ass to the curb. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, at least it's going to get better in year two. Mm, not really. Six and 10 in 1980. He feels a lot like Belichick in his first season in New York or in not New York, New England. Yeah. He's six and 10. So Belichick six and 10 in 2000. Uh, this team isn't showing any signs of progress. Like if from the outside looking in, you're like, what are they doing? And mm -hmm. I, you felt that way, like in Belichick's first year and really the first like a couple of weeks of 2001, even the first 18 games of his tenure. Yeah. It didn't look like it was heading the right direction. And nope. yeah, but not, we're not this in that about the Patriots. So, but in 81, the 49ers shock everyone and go 13 and three. Their regular season metrics actually weren't all that impressive though. This team was like when, you know, people talk about like the Oh one bears, or the Vikings from last year in 2022. Yeah. Like people will say, oh, the worst 13 and three team or the worst 13 win team of all time. I'm not saying the 49ers were that. Like they weren't the 22 Vikings, but yeah. they weren't great. Like they weren't even closer the to a 10 or 11 win team, probably. They weren't even the third best team in the NFC by DVOA in 1981. Dallas. Yeah, Dallas, Tampa Bay, Philly were all better in terms of advanced metrics like that. So if you DVOA is and you Neil, if you want to explain what DVOA is for the listener, you can probably do it better than I am. Yeah, defensive value over the average. So it's it's look up Aaron Schatz and all the work he's done. He it used to be through football outsiders, now that he's at FTN. Um, it basically measures if zero is the average, how, what percent above average you are. And they measure things like on a per per play basis and over a game basis. Um, how often is the team successful at, you know, gaining 40% on first down, gaining 67% on second down, gaining a hundred percent on third and fourth down. So basically, and then they, they throw in things like opponent adjustments, uh, you know, negative plays, all that sort of thing. Yeah. So, and going back to the 49ers, like DVOA basically says it's a good team, not a great team. Yeah. Not but, a Super Bowl team. But metrics only tell a part of a story. And mm -hmm. this is the birth of a great team. Like the 49ers weren't a good team in the 80s, they were an all time team in the 80s yeah. and this is just the start and we'll get into that in a little bit they get the giants in the divisional round handle business ronnie lott had a pick six in that game starts to cement himself as like a top 20 player all time they put up 38 points on rookie i guess 31 because i included the pick six yeah they put up 31 points on a giants defense with uh with on a giants defense with Lawrence Taylor that featured Parcells and Bill Belichick on the coaching staff. I think that's mm -hmm. pretty impressive. That not yeah. bad, Joe. Not bad. Jo 
Yeah, George Martin would have been on that defense. I'm, yeah. I'm sure Harry Karsten was there at the time. I think so, he yeah. Came a little bit. But so, yeah, that, I mean, that was an incredible output from a team that maybe wasn't, you know, like, as I remember Randy crossing one time, we just weren't, we had enough guys in our team that were too ignorant to know what the bad times were like, you know, and that's kind of maybe how they viewed getting into the postseason was we got nothing to lose. Yeah. And they, they, they really, really, really good in that divisional round game. So they're playing their best football and they're going to need it because they're playing the Cowboys. And like I said earlier, they were the class of the NFC basically since Lombardi left the Packers. Um, mm-hmm. they, they were consistently in the Super Bowl. The only thing that really prevented a Tom Landry Dallas Cowboys dynasty was that pesky team in Pittsburgh uh, who just happened to have a better roster than even they did when Dallas was like this machine and they kind of modernized how teams drafted and evaluated talent. Like Gil Brandt was like the main guy behind that in terms of the front office. He's in the pro football hall of fame. Landry is a legendary coach, great players all around the field, good coaching. Um, you know, their last losing season though, was in 1964. So we're in 81. So it's been 17 seasons basically. And at that I point, got, in the, I think they got to 1987 too, without having a losing season. Yeah. Landry was awesome. Like for his entire career. So, cause the early sixties, the Cowboys were basically an expansion league or expansion team in a league that was not friendly to expansion teams. Mm-hmm. Ask the Falcons, ask the saints. So over the 17-year stretch prior to 81, you know, Tom Landry and the Cowboys, they won two Super Bowls and won the NFC five times. And no team had made more Super Bowl trips at that time than Dallas. Pittsburgh and Minnesota had four. Minnesota, unfortunately, lost all four, and Pittsburgh won all four there. So wah, like, wah, wah. <laughs> yeah. That really sucks, by the way, because, like, obviously— And then they haven't even been back yet. <laughs> Yeah, it sucks for the Vikings in terms of, like, I respect the Purple People Eaters, Bud Grant, like, awesome teams. Yeah. But, like, it's pretty hilarious that they didn't win a single Super Bowl. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just just saying, you could have done it once. Like, you had a one chance. You could have won. But, uh, but this 1981 team had three Hall of Fame players on it. Tony Dorsett, Drew Pearson, Randy White, all great players um i thought about this i i i do t- i had in my notes like maybe ed too tall jones but looking back at his career he wasn't quite hall of fame level but he was really close yeah hall of very good hall of very good yeah he was he was more mythical because of just yeah. how large he was um, yeah uh, actually I- random fun fact about him the pick he was drafted at was actually the last time a team inherited the first round pick until Caleb Williams. Really? (laughs) Yes. That was the last time a team inherited the first round pick of the draft, not the first round, pick, the first pick of the draft. That's an amazing fact. It's been 50 years and add two tall Jones is the last one. Wow. So that means Caleb Williams hall of very good. 
Actually, I did a deep dive into oh shit the hell. <laughs> Actually, I would take that. I would take that. I would take that in a heartbeat. Um, but I did a deep dive into teams that have inherited the first round pick, and it almost always like Paul Horning, technically, because that was back in the day that um, yeah, there was a a lottery in the not like what the NBA and the NHL have, but yeah, um, the the first pick was awarded to a team on a lottery. Um, Buck Buchanan was drafted number one and overall by the, the Dallas Texans, AKA the Kansas city chiefs. He went to the hall of fame. Ron Yeri was drafted in 1968, but the Minnesota Vikings, he went to yeah. the hall of fame. Like there's only a few examples of it, but like, it's been pretty good. So knock on wood, lightning strikes again. <laughs> yeah. This, uh, yeah, like I, I could, uh, we'll see what happens. I mean, the only thing that we definitely know for sure is that Kayla Williams will be a Chicago bear. So we'll see what happens after that. Uh, Ever, Everson walls was the player. I think like that. And he, unfortunately, like at the end of this game, like everybody remembers the catch. Cause he was, I think in the coverage for Dwight Clark. Yeah. yeah. Um, he was in the vicinity. He should be in the hall of fame though. Like I look he back had at a his hell career, of a game. What's that? He had a hell of a game uh, this day. I mean, he was, he had a couple great plays. Yeah, he was, he was awesome. And uh, I, I, he was great in this game outside of the catch, basically, Mm -hmm. which I consider almost a fluky play. But Everson Walls, I think, has an argument. So hopefully we'll see him get some consideration for the senior category. Mm -hmm. Um, But outside of that, like, kind of a boring team because they're so consistent like it it they're like the 90s Braves yeah like just good players everywhere really well managed well coached because I mean Tom Landry Bobby Cox you get the same kind of vibe from them but like they weren't closing the Super Bowl at the rate that they could have I think mm-hmm. like they had the, the no team, even the Steelers, couldn't claim to be this consistently excellent for this long. And it kind of felt disappointing. Only two Super Bowls, like for the amount of success and the amount of talent and the coach that they had. It's just and some of it was bad luck, including this game. But they they handled their business in the divisional round in 1981 playoffs. They beat the crap out of Tampa Bay, 38 to nothing. So we get a really good matchup. Tam- uh, San Francisco, Dallas, NFC title game at Candlestick Park. Cowboys are three-point road favorites. So that should tell you the respect the Dallas Cowboys had going into this game. And San Francisco had annihilated Dallas earlier in the season. And it tells you uh, the respect Dallas had for sure, but also how the public felt about the 49ers. They felt that this team was probably paper tigers and and maybe that win was a fluke back in October. Yeah. Very similar vibes to the 2001 Steelers or uh, not Steelers, the 2001 Patriots. True. Yeah. Cause uh, you know, going into that AFC title game, like, Oh, well, you know, Brady, he's six round pick. He's fluke. He's overrated. And the Steelers were at home, Heinz Field. 
you know, Cordell Stewart was a pretty popular player. Same kind of vibe. But 1981 season, what a vibe at Candlestick Park. 49ers have a shot at the Super Bowl for the first time in their history, and this place looks electric. The dimensions, like, make no sense because it was one of those multi-purpose stadiums. Mm -hmm. But, like, we had seen veteran stadium. We had seen Riverfront, Three Rivers, like, all these, like, stadiums that had been used for baseball and football. Like, they were very circular. Bush Stadium was like this in St. Louis. Yeah, cookie-cutter stadiums. Cookie-cutter stadiums that did both. But like the dimensions were wonky at Candlestick, like yeah, which, but it they made had, it like, kind of fun. Temp- temporary bleachers along yeah. the, I guess it would be, the let's see, the sun used to set over there. It was the opposite from the TV side. Yeah, so, like, so yeah, the opposite of the TV side. Yeah, where the yeah. the away team was. Yeah. So first first thing I see is what a vibe Candlestick Park. Like if I could go back in time and go to a game. This is one of those games. Definitely. Danny White, starting quarterback for Dallas. But he's also the starting punter. So that was 81. <laughs> so we're still, and, and, and this is like one of the things I'll get into in a, in a second. But like the Cowboys still do a lot of things that you would see like in the 60s, like during the, like the Lombardi era where, you know, Jerry Kramer's kicking field goals, right? Mm-hmm. And, Danny White's punting and like the Tom Landry is wearing his suit with his fedora, right? Old school. Like that's how they, that's how old time coaches looked. Bill Walsh has a headset. It's like you're watching today's coach versus yesterday's coach in the same game. Yeah. It's really an interesting dynamic. Uh, But Danny White, actually a really good punter. So we're not going to spend that much time talking about punts in this game, but he had a lot. That was, yeah, I thought that was really interesting, mm-hmm. and and a, a kind of an advantage if you're carrying if you if you can play two positions like that because then you're not, you know, with roster limits set like that, you don't have to carry. Like honestly, if a, a quarterback were able to punt full time, like that's an advantage for a team because they I, wouldn't have. I don't know if you heard. Uh, Vince Scully say on the broadcast, uh, but he was like one one of the times I think it was like in the first quarter that uh, Danny White was lining up to punt. They were like, and don't forget, like uh, White's arm, which c- kind of leads you to believe that like a few you times you could fake it. And and they probably did. And they probably had success doing it, um, you know, during those times. Yep. So first quarter, Niners get a quick score. Montana finds Freddie Solomon for an eight-yard touchdown. Seven nothing Niners. Candlesticks going crazy. Getting the lead on the Cowboys. That's an important thing to do. Their easiest drive of the game until the last drive of the game. It's it, that was really the only drive. Yep. It seemed like things were really simple for them. Yep. Dallas quickly matches with the Raphael Septien field goal. Seven to three 49ers. Hearing Vin Scully say Raphael Septien was just so damn satisfying because like he was a baseball announcer and like I guess it's a I think Septien's father was like uh like on the Mexican national team for soccer so it's like hearing the Hispanic name like it just brought me back like days of watching Vince Scully called baseball but I'm watching a football game so that's kind of cool uh 
to end the first quarter, Cowboys take the lead with a beautiful throw from Danny White to Tony Hill. Uh, Danny White. Uh, sorry, go ahead, Steve. Okay. No, 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 you go. Uh, Danny White needed a big game uh, after the way he played in October. He was like eight of 16 for 60 yards and like two interceptions in the regular season game. So yeah. he needed to prove his worth that day. And he actually, he played a really strong game. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of the times you hear people say, you know, the regular season matchup doesn't count. Like it's so hard to beat a team twice. Well, that's true. But I think a quarterback, if you play poorly in one game, it does translate into the playoff yeah. game. Like we yes. saw it in 2020, Aaron Rodgers plays like crap against the yeah. Bucks in the regular season. There was That's a couple right. picks. What does he do in the NFC title game? It was a couple picks. So yeah. the Packers can't stop turning it over in that game. Same thing. But you, you basically, like you said, you want to get off to a start where you can get a lead and you can get some confidence going from Danny White. And this Niners defense was no joke. Like it it had some talent. Um just but that touchdown pass to Tony Hill just classic man-to-man football. Uh when he beat Eric Wright for the touchdown. End of first quarter, it's 10-7 Dallas. Start of the second quarter, uh Montana has this sick play where he evades at two tall Jones. I think it's one of his best plays of the game. Mm-hmm. Where he basically fakes him out, like, and maybe Ed Tudal Jones is literally too tall to to change direction here, but Montana steps up and like kind of makes this play on the move, throws the ball 25, 30 yards downfield, finding Dwight Clark who beat Everson Walls, just a dime of a throw. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Walls gets his revenge later in that drive. He picks Montana off down the sideline. But Dallas punts, yay, Danny White. <laughs> uh, and Montana finds Dwight Clark for a go-ahead touchdown. It's 14-10 to 10 San Francisco. We kind of go to the late part of the second quarter. Ronnie Lott makes a great play on the ball uh, t- for the interception. And I-, I don't know if you saw this play, but what a sh- just horse crap call. Like, did you see, like, it- this was a clean interception, and they just completely missed it. Yes, I'm. I didn't see. It. There was no. There was no contact. Like it was a deep ball down the right sideline, and lot yes. barely made any contact. Yeah. He he barely made any contact. They call pass interference, and just a garbage call. And this is 1981, and we still deal with the stupid rule <laughs> the NFL has. Why? Why do we have? Somewhere a young Sean Payton was losing his mind. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. College has a good model for this. Why mm-hmm. is defensive pass interference a spot of the foul penalty? Yeah, I've never understood that. There should never be a 50-yard penalty. Like, yeah. That's so dumb. And that sets Dallas up, though, to score a touchdown. Right at the end of the first half, Tony Dorsett walks it in. 17 to 14 Dallas. One of the tricky things, if you go back and watch this game on YouTube or anything, there's no score bug in 1981. And there's really not like great score bugs up until like the mid to late nineties. So watching a game in 81, like you kind of have to follow along and then hopefully they'll show you 
a shot of the scoreboard, which literally yeah. to tell you how much time was left, they had to take a shot of the physical scoreboard. It was better to awesome. look away. <laughs> yeah. And then like Vin Scully's like, yeah, there's this much time left on the in the game. And like, or Hank Stram, who's providing color, would would do it as well. Uh just a poor end of the, of the first half. A lot of turnovers. There was a muffed punt in there. Bad clock management by San Francisco to end the half. So you're going to the locker room. Like it kind of felt like these teams were talented, but it was sloppy. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dallas took the lead 17 to 14 at the half. Um, my, my halftime report and feel free to, to put your thoughts into this. Um, I could tell at two tall Jones was a boxer. Like he was so quick with yeah. his hands. It was ridiculous. That was like, it was a joy watching Special. him play. Yeah. Uh, Randy white is one of the best defensive players I've ever watched. Um, I felt like I was watching like a smaller Aaron Donald, if that makes sense. Like, yeah. He, he was so, he was so quick on his feet. Like it was, yeah. He was a block of a man. Yeah. And like, cause Aaron Donald's like a little taller, but he, he's like, he has that. that he, he's so like, I guess, strong and lean where he has the ability to win with just so much quickness. Like if you go back and watch Randy white, he was really, he was really that good. And mm-hmm. I mean, he was a hall of famer and everything. So people should know Randy white. Uh, but I was really impressed by him. Um, and th- that gives you some context. Like Montana, statistically, he didn't have a good game uh, in this game, but no, he was dealing with this defense. So I cut him some slack there. Do you know one thing I have to say about his the defense about Dallas um, that I was kind of wondering as the game went on, and um, just part of the evolution of football. Of course, Tom Landry is kind of credited, basically credited with being the father of the 4-3 defense. But his 4-3 defense was a little bit different than, say, the 4-3 defense that was even run, like, yeah. a couple years later that, say, like, the Bears were using, like, Buddy Ryan's Bears were using. Yeah. Um, his outside linebackers were flanking the defensive ends instead of playing behind the defensive line. And I wonder, especially in an age that, well, now when we think of defense and like base packages, we think just about everybody runs the nickel. Like there's, you know, yeah, there's no so point pass there. heavy. It's so pass heavy. Um, but me and you had talked about this. We had texted that like San Francisco operated like a modern, like more, way more of a modern team than, um, the, like just to what we're used to, like we were like, we were able to sit there and be like, Oh, okay. That looks somewhat really the only thing that looked ancient about the way they did things was they had wide receivers still getting in three point stances, but they, yeah. they were doing that all the way up until Jerry Rice was a rookie, like in 1985, like Jerry Rice yeah. was still getting in a three point stance split out wide, but like their past concepts were really modern, um, for this time and age. Um, but I was wondering, were the Cowboys linebackers playing so close to the line of scrimmage when San Francisco literally had the West coast offense that was built to on timing routes and quick passes 
and three step drops. Was that just the worst defense or the, not just the worst defense, but the worst schemed up alignment that they could have had? Yeah, I, I think some of it, and I think it kind of speaks to the talent that they had in the front four, really, especially yeah. Randy White. Yeah. Because he was so disruptive. So even though I think they had the looks that like San Francisco had the looks that they wanted and were and like they did it on the final drive. They were able to move the ball really mm -hmm. primarily on the ground, but uh you know, they were running that West Coast scheme, which was such a mishmash, like you said, for that defense. But I think players and we sometimes like people that watch the game, like even in today's game, like players still win, right? Yeah. And when you have some of the players Dallas had, you could have a poorly called defensive. And I don't want to call it poorly called because. Yes. They the West Coast was a radical it type was. of offense. Like yeah, they they were unfortunately just caught at a point that yeah. that was being that type of alignment was about to be phased out, and this was kind of the game that I think maybe yeah. started to nine, prove to people. Nine of the ninety percent of the looks that you were going to see throughout the year, and probably like what they had in the, all their packages, were these types of defensive looks. So, like you said, now, and, like, this is where I scream. Like, people that go, like, all the analytics bros. Like, I get analytics serves its purpose because mm -hmm. it's giving you inf information, right? Like, yeah. I'm, I, I was just talking about DVOA. So, I'm not against looking at the game through that lens. What I don't understand, though. You don't like the nerds. <laughs> yeah. Well, that that say you should only base your decision off of, you know, what historically is most likely to work. But because he, here's the thing, like you said, the, the game that in today's game, they run so much nickel. Right. Yeah. But yet the league continues to care so much about staying pass heavy. Yeah. But you look at the teams that make the Super Bowl, like Kansas City, San Francisco. Philly I mean, last year. They fucking run the ball. Yeah. You still have to be able to control the trenches yeah. like that. You're never going to hear me say, yeah, quarterbacks don't matter. Why? I'm not going crazy here. Yeah. I'm just saying running no, the ball matters right. because ultimately every team plays nickel, right? Mm -hmm. And too high safety now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it, it, the other thing, too, like on the defensive side of things in today's game, if you can play nickel defense and stop the run, like you're going to be an all, you're going to be a great defense. Baltimore yes. did it. San Francisco was able to do it for most of the year up until the, the playoffs, really. And actually, the, the Bears were doing it the last half of the season, and yeah. that's what kind of sprung their turnaround. Yeah. yeah, like Baltimore couldn't really run the ball on Kansas City, and they won because they basically said, like, okay, we're not going to let you throw it all over the field. We're going to spy Lamar. And that's what the game is about now. Like, everybody looks through the, looks at the game now. It's more about coaching and scheme. But I think back then it was still more about players. And the game should still be more about players. And I think real NFL coaches do look at that. Like, you can have a poorly called defensive play. But if I have Aaron Donald, yeah, does it matter? Sick Probably not.
Like, just go get them. Go make the quarterback uncomfortable. And that's still the essence of football. Like, get after the opposing team's er, offense. You know, create negative plays, force turnovers, and get the ball back for your offense. But going into the third quarter here, uh, my the other thing I want to cover for halftime is these coaching staffs. So Tom Landry's the head coach. Mentioned his two Super Bowls. Gene Stallings, defensive coordinator for the Cowboys. He later becomes a national championship head coach at Alabama. I actually, I have it written down that he was defensive coordinator. I might, I think he might have been defense. No, I think he was defensive coordinator. He, he, he was the coordinator, yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking of uh, George Seifer was the defensive backs coach. Um, but G, Gene Stallings ends up winning a national championship in the 90s. Uh, and then talked about Gil Brandt and how he basically revolutionized the pro scouting. And uh, Ditka was the special teams coach for Dallas. Correct. I forgot to write that down. Yeah, I, that I was... He was uh, 10 days away from being hired. because So this was his last game in Dallas then. And then he went to Chicago. And then he went to Chicago 10 days later. That's awesome. Um, and then Bill Walsh uh, on the 49ers side. We all know him. Three Super Bowls. Lots of success. John McVay was their director of player personnel. Sean McVay's grandfather. Sam Weish, quarterback's coach for Joe Montana. Uh, Bengals and Bucks head coach had a lot of success with the Bengals and instituting a no huddle offense, kind of revolutionized offensive football uh, in the late eighties. Uh, also a Furman guy, so go Dens. <laughs> and Sam Weish is actually re- the reason I've—he's uh, the only time I've actually been able to wear a Super Bowl ring because he let me wear his Super Bowl sixteen. Uh, oh, because. I used to work with Sam Weish on some broadcast stuff back at Furman when I was like just leaving college. And he had like for his broadcast, he would always still wear his Super Bowl 16 uh, ring, which he later won in the 1981 season with the 49ers. He was the quarterback's coach under Bill Walsh. Wait, uh, they won this game? <laughs> spoilers. Uh, George Seifert, defensive backs coach, two time Super Bowl champion. With these 49ers, uh, he succeeded Walsh, and he's the first coach to win a Super Bowl in his first season as a head coach. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he also coached in Carolina, but we'll just forget about that. That didn't that didn't go good. <laughs> that was Chris Winky, anyone? Chris Winky. <laughs> Third quarter, Dallas goes three and out to start the second half. Danny White picks off Montana. I I wrote Danny White. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, it should be Randy White. Excuse me. I was going to say, yeah. did he play DB too? Yeah, <laughs> Dude, I was is like, unbelievable. <laughs> no, Randy White picks off Joe Montana, and that's fourth turner. I knew as soon as I said it, I'm like, that's not right. Danny White played quarterback. Randy White was a defensive lineman. Ran- it was a tip pass, and Randy White makes a play on the ball. Fourth turnover, which – you know, we were joking that Danny White's unbelievable. Randy White actually was unbelievable. Like, he was making plays in the backfield, getting after the quarterback, intercepts a pass, just making an impact like he always did. Uh, but Bobby Leopold makes a play. Uh, Niners pressure Danny White. 
and the ball tips off of Ron Spring's hands. So it's just a turnover fest here. Like mm-hmm. it's kind of sloppy. Like, but Very I think sloppy. I think it's more of a testament to how good these defenses were. Um, Dallas forces a fourth and one, but they jump off sides. First down, 49ers. Johnny Davis uh, runs it in. And the Niners head into the fourth quarter up 21 to 17. So sloppy third quarter overall. But the Niners end up getting a four point advantage going into the final quarter. Ronnie Lott gets called for this massive pass interference again. And unfortunately, this is the second time this has happened, and it sets up Dallas in a great spot. And when you're in a big championship game like this, what does every coach say? When you get in the red zone, you have to do what? You have to hold them to field goals. And the other team is saying, we got to score touchdowns. (laughs) This is where I think the game was decided. So Dallas has to settle for a field goal. They don't get, they they can't take advantage of the pass interference uh, penalty against Ronnie Lott. It's 21 to 20 San Francisco. So Dallas can't even take a lead here in this situation, which also made me think in today's game, Dallas probably goes for it. Yeah. If they, Dallas probably goes for this in this situation. If they're down four and they need a touchdown to take the lead, I don't think they want to give San Francisco the ball back still down one. And the other problem is you can't go for two in 1981. The two point conversion wasn't a thing until 1994. So San Francisco. You don't want to find yourself up six. No, you, that and the other thing is you're giving San Francisco the ball back down one. If they score a touchdown, and kick the extra point. It's a two you're, possession game. You're screwed. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're watching this game, like in hindsight, the first thing you have to do is you have to rethink what a two possession game is. Cause like you're trained now, like unless you're Dan Campbell, because you can't understand this in terms of what the difference between a three-point game and or a three-possession game and a two-possession game is. But nine-point game in today's game is two possessions. Eight points is one, right? Because it would take a touchdown and a two-point conversion. So that's probably the only thing I can criticize Tom Landry for here is you probably, in hindsight, go for this because – the field goal doesn't really help you that much. No. Um, but anyway, they kick it. It's, it's a one-point game. The game's still flipping their way, though, because they recover a fumble, and Danny White and the Cowboys convert that into a touchdown. So they do take advantage of the turnover, and uh, Doug Cosby scores the go-ahead touchdown. They kick a PAT. The other mistake you might make if you're watching this game you know, in 2024 is, oh, you got to go for two here because you got to make it a seven-point game. Right. You can't. There was no two-point conversion until 1994. Uh, You know, college football, they had it in 58. The AFL had it during their entire existence. So the NFL was actually the last organized football. To adopt it. Which is kind of weird to think about. Uh, Trivia question. Who scored the first two-point conversion? Um, so in 1994? Yes. Uh, 
I don't know, Favre, Sterling Sharp. Tom Tupa of the Cleveland Browns ran in a fake field goal attempt or a fake PAT attempt. Really? Who was the coach of the Browns in 94? Oh, Bill. Bill was. (laughs) I love that because it's like he gets the first two-point conversion and he was like the first coach in like 60 years to do a drop kick. Uh, Remember with Doug Flutie? bastard. God, I love Bill. Like just that type of stuff. We really love Bill. So, because I looked that up and I was just like, Tom Tupa of the Browns. I'm like, wait, 94? I'm like, yes. Like, I'm sure Kirk Ferentz helped draw it up too. Um, (laughs) But um, anyway, it's flipping Dallas's way. Montana, he it's it when it rains, it pours. You think once this happens, this game's over. Montana yeah, it, throws his third interception to Everson Walls here. And I thought it was curtains for sure. Yeah. It and it reminded me like of the recent San Francisco playoff wins that like against Green Bay, for example, like Aaron Jones makes his huge run. You think like that's the game. Mm-hmm. Everson Walls makes this play. I'm thinking though this game's wrapped up. All all Gone. Dallas needs at this point is a field goal. It's out of reach. Um, and this game feels like it's going their way. Landry's gonna make his sixth Super Bowl appearance. Remember, no other franchise had four. Or uh, the only other Pittsburgh and Miami had four. No other team had five. He's about to get his sixth. If they win this game, how do we look at Tom Landry? Do we look at him differently? Yeah, that's a good way. I mean, it, it would have been not just six, six and 12 years. Yeah. Um, and he was, he was on the cusp with the ice bowl. He was yep. on the cusp the year before. I mean, um, yeah. He's so, an all time. Yeah. And that would have been his third Super Bowl, assuming they beat Cincinnati. Yep. Which I think they probably do beat Cincinnati more handily than the Niners did because we think Dallas is probably a better football team in 1981 than San Francisco was. Yeah. So it's kind of an interesting way to look at it because like we look at Tom Landry as an all-time coach, like top 10, right? But like you're starting to, you're going to have to put him in like the Lombardi Belichick like category in terms of like dominant head coaches that had success in the NFL. But what what's true though about this, and it's you, you always hear about it be, before any big championship playoff game, whatever it might be. Whenever there's one team that's considered the favorite and the other is the underdog, um, and they, you know, they're talking at the pre pregame um, studio set before the game, and they say, "Well, what what does so and so have to do to win this?" And you'll always hear one of the commentators say or analysts go. Well, if it's close late, the longer it stays close, the better chance they have, right? Because now, now you're banking on like 50, 50 probabilities when you get down yeah. to it. And so that's kind of what happened to San Francisco. They were probably thinking if we have the chance late, we'll take it. And that's what they, that's what they got. Yeah. So, and their defense comes up clutch here. Uh, an underrated performance. Um, that defense kept them in the game. They they forced three turnovers. They had less than 300 yards mm-hmm. given up. They keep them in this game throughout the game. So A lot of young ga- talent, even besides Ronnie Lott on that defense. Everybody's going to remember Joe Montana and Dwight Clark. 
but the 49ers defense in this game deserved the game ball. Yeah. No doubt. Uh, so they get the ball back. Uh, you know, they force a punt. They take over from a, another good Danny White punt, by the way. They have to start at their own 11-yard line. So this underrated part of this is, you know, the catch is what everybody remembers, but the fact they got down the field was impressive. And Montana made a couple of throws, uh, but they ran the ball pretty well. So they started their own 11, uh, in- incomplete on their first play, but second and 10 from their own 11, Linville Elliott gets six, making it a third and four, third and four from their own 17. Montana hits Freddie Solomon to move the chains. As Brett Favre used to always say, the key to a two-minute drill or a game-winning drive is get a first down because that mm-hmm. sets up everything. You get yeah. the defense uncomfortable, right? You get if, them on if, their heels. Yeah, that's the key to And I mean, it sounds obvious, but really, like, you watch game-winning drives. That feels like the hardest, the hardest accomplishment is that first down, uh, that first first down. Uh, Elliot gets another first down on a 10 yard run. Uh, a couple of runs after this, they get a third and three from their own 41. Another first down. So Linville Elliott's kind of the star of this drive. So he gets them pretty much almost to midfield. Montana completes, uh, you know, a little pass second and five from Dallas, uh, from the Dallas 49. So they get across midfield mostly by Linville Elliott. Solomon gains 13 yards on a reverse. And it's a first down for the 49ers. That was kind of like, I felt like where it broke for them. Yeah. Uh, Dallas was selling so hard on, on stopping Linval Elliott that they crashed down too hard on the side that he was heading to. And they faked the handoff and Solomon came back the other side. It was a really well drawn up play at the time. Yep. And then they get the ball to the 36 after that run. Montana throws this beautiful ball to Dwight Clark. I think the best throw of this drive for him. Yeah, it was perfect did, right in the basket. Yeah, just a perfectly accurate pass. Dwight Clark stays in bounds. And it's always just like so I guess appropriate in this type of game if you're going to win a game like this. You need 10, you're going to gain you gain 11. That's just perfect. Like the you knew I think at that point like okay, the 49ers got this, right? Um they get the ball to the Dallas 25. Montana makes another big time play and hits Solomon again for 12 yards. Uh, Elliott gets another run to set Dallas uh, or San Francisco up at the six yard line. And this is where everything changes. And everybody remembers this play. You watch any NFL films clip, this is like the first thing you see. And it's always from the perspective of the back end zone, right? Mm hmm. But Montana, he scrambles to his right, and this pass rushes all over him. And Ed Too Tall Jones, which is such an appropriate nickname in this one moment, is just towering over Joe Montana. And Montana just appears to throw it away, but somehow this ball just it falls in the direction of a leaping Dwight Clark, who made it an just an incredible effort to get his body in a position to make the catch. And that is known as the catch. Niners take the lead. Really, they tie the game and then kick an extra point to take the lead. And that's the catch. 
Yeah. I mean, it's, it is one of the probably three most iconic plays in NFL history um, up there with the immaculate reception. Uh, why am I blanking on other plays? Uh, I think those are the two. Yeah, the two. It's the two, um, the two most iconic. It was um, truly at a time when the NFL was um, conquered by all of the big dogs, even though, like, say, Pittsburgh wasn't considered, and Dallas only came about in 1960, but Pittsburgh yeah. wasn't big until the, the early 70s. But still, like you a had newcomer. Green Bay, a newcomer. You had Green Bay that had won two in a row. And then, yes, the AFL the had their little, they had their breakthrough. The Raiders were uh, the a big, tough, mean team. You had, like I said, the Steelers, the Cowboys. Um, and so San Francisco breaking through was really seemingly like the win for the little guy. Because, you know, the Jets winning Super Bowl three was obviously big. We're not trying to take anything away from that. Yeah. But the Super Bowl wasn't the Super Bowl yet then. You know, and the NFL was it was getting bigger for sure, but it wasn't just there yet. Mm-hmm. San Francisco overcoming this Goliath um that had stood in front of them. If you hear any of the 49ers talk about um that game. The Cowboys represented everybody who had stood in their way that had laughed at them, that had mocked them for years and years and years. And here they were putting the stake through the big bad beast. Um, it was, it, it's, it's truly um, like an artistic moment in NFL history. You could not paint a better picture than what happened in Candlestick Park on that January day, 1982. What a vibe. What a vibe from San Francisco, just Candlestick Park in that moment. Like when you think of the NFL, like you said, I think it's better than the Immaculate Reception. I think it's like, it's just a romantic picture of NFL history. Mm -hmm. And Every time you see, like, when I think of, like, great plays in sports, like, I think of Michael Jordan hitting the shot against Cleveland. Over Craig Elo. Yep. I think of, you know, Carlton Fisk, you know, trying to wave the ball. <laughs> and then I think of the catch. But the funny thing is the game wasn't over. Dallas oh, wait a second. <laughs> Dallas still got the ball with 47 seconds left. Imagine if, if Dallas scored and I broke how, their goddamn hearts. I love how we were like super romantic and like, hey, by the way, the game's not fucking over yet. <laughs> Defense, you got to get on the fucking field. Yeah. And I think, like, I think uh, I'm trying to, Ronnie Lott's like freaking out on the sideline going, yeah, yeah. And like I think one of the coaches like calm the fuck down. I I saw that. Yeah, <laughs> calm the fuck. Down. Like you had to play defense. Like yeah, you got grabbed and like told to get out there. <laughs> you had to go play. But and like it's not like this team sucks that you're playing against. Like Drew Pearson, <laughs> by the way, is on the other side, waiting. To, and Drew Pearson has a knack of making huge plays at the end of games. Ask Viking fans. 
there. That's that's like three digs in this episode alone. Hey, <laughs> I'll say this: we put a YouTube short up of Jared Allen getting a sack. I don't want to fucking hear it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You should be happy with that. It, yeah, and yeah. I know we did the YouTube short of the of the. Actually, you know, we could have done the Paul Allen call of that, and we didn't. Oh, so, well, we probably get your, a copyright strike. Yeah, that. you're right. So, you know, we need to always put like our narration over it. But you're welcome, Vikings fans. Anyway, Danny White and the, and the Cowboys—they're going to get the ball back with 47 seconds, and and this is like such a like Packers defensive play in the playoffs like to happen. Like I I felt like a Packers fan watching if I were like a 49ers fan. Of course he hits Drew Pearson for like 30 yards the first play, right? And Dallas is in business. But underrated part of this play is Eric Wright tackles Drew Pearson in the open field. And that prevents Drew Pearson running another 40 yards downfield for a game yeah. touchdown. Now, and this- and looking back on it, there was an angle that it looked like Lot might have had a play at him, but he's definitely in field goal range. Like, if he doesn't score a touchdown, he's definitely in field goal range. And if field goal wins Dallas the game, if Wright doesn't make this tackle, Drew Pearson runs in for a touchdown or at least gets them into field goal range where Septien can kick a game-winning field goal to send the Cowboys to the Super Bowl. Everybody wants to talk about the catch, but they should be talking as much about the tackle. Mm -hmm. But the Niners' defense, they seal it on the very next play. So all's forgotten. Lawrence Pillars strips Danny White. Jim Stuckey recovers. Fun fact, shout out to Clemson here. Dwight Clark game-winning catch. Jim Stuckey recovers the fumble, also a Clemson Tiger. So oh, there you go. Yeah. So Clemson may, and Clemson won the national championship in 1981. So what a, big a great, year. <laughs> great year for Clemson football there. South Carolina uh, football. So aftermath of this game, the Cowboys begin their downward trend. Like, like, I, like Neil said, they had some playoff seasons, but never really got to this point again. Yeah. Um, and then by the 88 season, they're horrible. Jerry Jones buys the team. And he, at the end of the 88 season, going into 89, Jerry fires Tom Landry, which was really controversial. Um, You know, I'm pretty sure Tom Landry told Jerry Jones to F himself, which I get it. Like, you've been there for 30 years and you've been successful for 99% of it. That sucks. But Jerry made the right move. They ended up winning three Super Bowls pretty much after that. So it unfortunately worked out for them. And funny thing, some irony, Bill Walsh's final season in San Francisco was also in 1988. So they they ended their NFL careers at the same time. That's right. Bill Walsh was obviously a newcomer, but it's weird how they both went out at the same time. Like Tom Landry was like this old, you know, kind of this old soul, I guess. No pun intended, but he was the, the old guy, and then Bill Walsh was the new guy, and they but they left at the same time. Bill Walsh you know, later went to coach Stanford, but yeah, Walsh never. Um, he just wasn't mentally and emotionally healthy enough, I think, to have a long career in the NFL. He lived and died too much with um, the outcome. With the outcome, I, he um, reminded me of Lombardi because he yeah. never looked happy. Um. 
even at the end of this game, like all the 49ers, like we mentioned, Ronnie Lott celebrating, like, oh, everybody's so happy. And like Bill Walsh looked relieved. Yeah. Than anything. Yes. And, and like, this should be the greatest moment of your life so far. And I don't know. Like, I can't speak for him. I'm not Bill Walsh and I don't know what he was saying behind the scenes, but like, at least from what I saw, like, I've seen bigger celebrations out of coaches before. Um, yeah. But the Cowboys, they they go on that downward trend, like I said. And to kind of finish up here, 49ers, they end up going to Pontiac for Super Bowl 16, Pontiac, Michigan, Lions, home field, the Silver Dome, uh, that yellow smoke like we talked about. Yeah. They defeat the upstart Came Bengals. full circle. Great game, by the way. Super Bowl it 16. Was. Very good uh, game. Dan Bonds. Summer on Madden. Yeah. And they had a weird setup for CBS that year. So Vin Scully and Hank Schramm did the, the NFC title. NFC title, but they had Madden and Summerall do the Super Bowl. And a lot of people speculate that the reason Scully never did NFL games after this was his last NFL game. And the reason why he I guess quit football is because they were never going to get in the Super Bowls. And I think he's just like, I'm just going to go do baseball from now on. Oh. Um, I thought he was good. So I thought he was good, but he was better at baseball for sure. He, he was. And I mean, there's probably going to be some people that are like, how could you say this? I think Vin Scully is a legend. I'm not trying to take anything, but my first memories of Vin Scully were him being the play by play of like, the 1998 like uh the show games <laughs> yeah or whatever they were yeah and i remember I, this. Just, I remember the the graphic packet like me and my brother are playing those like in 2003 like when everybody else had playstation 2s yeah and i had like, that game i just remember the 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 graphics package being so awful and i was like uh, who is this guy talking you know, oh who was Vince Scully the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> but of course yeah. i was at the time i was like seven or eight but that's just like one of those lasting yeah. memories but you know he was good i'm glad summer all stuck though yeah well if you want to feel better about Vince Scully, go watch kirk gibson's home run and then you'll, you'll oh, feel better yes. about him so but anyway they defeat cincinnati in the super bowl force greg doesn't win one for cincinnati and Bill Walsh actually wins two more uh, with the 49ers. So they beat the Dan Marino's Miami Dolphins in Super Bowl 19. They beat Sam Weish and Boomer Esiason's Bengals in the, I think, Super Bowl 23, which was the 88 season. So Bill Walsh left pro football on top. Um, and then uh, Montana wins three more because he won an additional one with George Seifert. Mm-hmm. Uh, Super Bowl 24 with the uh, uh with the 49ers against the Denver Broncos. But it all started with the catch and the team of the 1980s was born with it. Thank you again for listening to the Old Souls Football Podcast. Don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on YouTube at Old Souls Football.